Once upon a time, there were identical twin boys that wound up in an orphanage. They seemed completely identical in every way except for one. One of the boys was completely optimistic. His twin brother was completely pessimistic. It didn't matter how good things were, the pessimist could find something to complain about. It didn't matter how bad things were, the optimist was always upbeat. There was a a college professor that wanted to study these twins, thought this would be perfect. What makes someone so cup half empty and someone else very similar circumstances and genetically so cup half full? So this professor got permission and he set out to study these boys and he first wanted to see if their optimism and pessimism pessimism had limits. Could I make the optimist pessimistic? Could I make the pessimist optimistic? So the boys were told you're going to be separated just for a, for a time and, and put in separate uh, rooms on, on their campus of the orphanage. And the The pessimist was given this room with everything a boy of that day could ever want. I mean, the latest games, the best technology, all the toys, the sports equipment. It was a dream world for a boy. And sure enough, watching on the hidden cameras, the professor could hear him interact with other kids who came by. Oh, it probably won't last. My brother's probably got it even better than me. I probably better not get used to this. So then he introduced the optimist into his room. He didn't know how to make the room bad enough to test him. So he took this big room and the the boy entered into a room that was filled at least in every corner with a giant pile of horse manure. He was watching this boy who just looked around for a minute. And before long, he dove headfirst into a, a steaming pile in the corner. And it just started flinging that stuff everywhere. And they, the, the professor thought he'd lost his mind. He, he ran out of the observation room. He ran to that door. He opened the, the, the door. And he said, son, you don't have to stay. It's okay. You can come out. And the kid poked his head out of there and said, just a few more minutes, Doc. There has got to be a pony in here somewhere. That's optimism. Now, while we read the book of Philippians, it can seem like Paul is just sort of that kind of optimist. He's the guy that's going to find, thinks there's going to be a pony in there somewhere No matter what, because Paul, he's writing this letter to a church, a group of friends he knows very well, he cares about. Um, We can tell he has received word from them. And Paul has every reason to spend his time in, in prison or imprisoned in Rome. Asking questions like, why me? Why, why isn't someone else in prison? I bet Peter and John aren't in prison right now, God. Just me. Haven't I been faithful? Haven't I done what you wanted me to do from a human standpoint? Paul has 
every reason to feel that way. And I wouldn't fault him if he did. But that's not Paul. But is Paul just this always optimistic guy? It's just the way God made him. He feels like he's going to find a horse in this mess sometime. Or is there something more? There is. Paul doesn't enjoy his circumstances. But Paul has his joy set on something that his imprisonment hasn't lost. We can tell today, and we'll see later in the book, a guy named Epaphroditus has been sent from Philippi to come meet Paul, and he's kind of answering some of their questions. And one question, which is a very natural question, that has to have been asked of Paul that he's dealing with today, excuse me, The Philippians want to know, how bad is it, Paul? Like, are you okay? I mean, it's got to be so rough. They're concerned about the end of Paul's ministry. I mean, he's already the greatest church planter ever. Is his ministry over? Right, Paul, aren't you worried, Paul, that wouldn't God be better off if you were out there planting churches instead of locked up? How bad is it? Well, Paul today is going to let them know, I'm okay. But not only... I'm okay. In some ways, I'm better than ever. I rejoice because of what's happened to me. That's Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. At least most of verse 18. Let's read that together this morning. Um, the New American Standard Version will be on the screen. Um, there's, a, there's a Bible in front of you, so you can keep one open under the chair and in front of you, feel free to grab one of those. It reads this way. Paul says, Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife, but some from goodwill. The latter, the goodwill ones, do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. 17 in this translation, the, the former, the, the, so the envy and strife preachers proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. That's our passage. The, the main idea of what we read in this paragraph comes out really clearly in verse 12. Paul's main idea is this. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my situation has actually turned out to advance the gospel. Now, I want you to know that you never have to say, I want you to know when you write something. It's extra, right? Paul could have just said, my situation has actually turned out to advance the gospel. 
And they would have known he wanted them to know that because he just wrote it. Does that make sense? Paul, that doesn't make these words unimportant though. Paul emphasizes what he's about to say. Pay attention. I really want you to know what I'm about to tell you. It's not that I don't want you to know the rest of it. But I really want you to know this. My situation, Paul calls it. Paul's situation is not just that he's in prison. It's the whole thing. The false charges brought by his countrymen, the Jews. Um, his arrest, the beatings. If you know his story, he had a shipwreck on the way. He got bit by a poisonous snake for Pete's sake. All of that has actually turned out to advance the gospel. Now, it's not just that Paul says, you know, things could always be worse. There's probably somebody that's got it even worse than I do. It's not what he says. Paul says, my enemies who are trying to squash the gospel by getting me arrested have actually, they would have been better off letting me plant churches, leaving me alone. They have actually, by getting me arrested, increased what they were trying to kill. That's what he says. You know that the gospels always work like this? It's always work like this. Um, the gospel works like a grease fire. There have always been forces that try to squash the gospel. They can be spiritual forces we don't even see. They can be uh, human forces, governmental forces that try to stamp out the gospel. It's like pouring water on a grease fire. It might make a difference right where that hits, but it just spreads that gospel fire to ten other places that start burning. It's the way it's always worked. It's one reason why I'm not ready to panic about the decline of the moral fiber of our nation. Because God's not done doing what He's always done. Paul just says, hear what he'll say a different way later. In the last book Paul writes is 2 Timothy. And there he tells Timothy, like, I might be in prison, but the word of God is not imprisoned. What they meant for the end of the gospel has actually turned out to increase the gospel. That's why. You want to know if I'm okay? I'm great. You know why? What my enemies are trying to kill lives on. Right? The rest of this passage is all about why that's true. Paul's going to tell his friends in Philippi some examples of how the gospel's in better shape because of everything that has happened to Paul. That's what this passage really is. Verse 13, Paul says... Uh, and he, Paul rejoices now in all of this stuff. In verse 13, Paul says the gospel is advancing, and so I rejoice because there's a unique audience for the gospel we wouldn't have had otherwise. Verse 13, the whole imperial guard and everyone else knows I'm in prison for the sake of Christ or, or something to that effect. Here's the way prison worked in Rome, especially if you were a Roman citizen like Paul was. Paul wasn't in the state pen. 
Okay, Paul was Paul was in a house. You had to rent your own house. Uh, we know this. Luke told us this at the end of the book of Acts. Um, Paul wrote this letter like right after the book of Acts ends. Here's what Paul said. Excuse me. Here's what Luke said were Paul's conditions while he writes this letter. This is the very last couple verses of the book of Acts. Luke writes, Paul lived there, that's Rome. He lived there two whole years in his own rented quarters and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with complete boldness and without restriction. So Paul had to rent his own place and pay for it. He could work as long as he could do the work from inside, or he, he could get people to support him. But he had to pay for this. We know, we'll, we'll read later in Philippians, the Philippians sent money for Paul's room and board. But he spent two years. He could receive visitors, uh, and he was chained to, history tells us, a member of, this, this translation says, the Imperial Guard. Your Bible might call it like the previous version that was on the screen, the Praetorian Guard. It's a little bit like maybe our Secret Service. Um, this wasn't the local police, and it wasn't the army. Um, the highest um, detail of this is who guarded the emperor. And then lower levels would have guarded special prisoners like Paul. History tells us in four-hour shifts, these guys would have been handcuffed to Paul. He was just in a house. He wasn't in a maximum security prison. So they, he was chained to a guard. Now, you think my sermons get long, and I know you do. Imagine being handcuffed to the Apostle Paul in four-hour shifts for two years. And Luke said that dude was telling people about Jesus all day, every day. Now back to his letter to the Philippians. Paul says, guys, don't be worried about me. You know, never in our wildest dreams could we have ever dreamed that I could spend two years handcuffed to the elite in Rome. And, and I could hear visitor after visitor. And, and all the while, these members of the four-hour ships hear the gospel, hear the gospel, hear the gospel, hear the gospel. Like my enemies were sick of me uh, planting churches in places like Philippi, Colossae, um, Thessalonica, you name the place. So they tried to get me off the mission field and all they did was transplant me to like the capital of the world. And now I'm sharing the gospel with the upper echelons of power in Rome. Who defunk it? Paul says, don't cry for me, Argentina. Like I, I am fine because the gospel's doing great. What they've tried to stamp out, they've actually increased. That's reason one that the gospel is advancing through Paul's, what he calls his situation or his circumstances. Verse 14, we get another. Uh, another reason the gospel is advancing through the courage other people have because of what Paul has gone through. Verse 14, and most of the brethren or the brothers and sisters, most of the Christians around here in Rome they have confidence in the Lord because of my imprisonment. And now, more than ever, 
They dare to speak the word fearlessly. What Paul is saying there is, guys, don't worry about the gospel here because courage is contagious. And that's still true. How many of you ever heard a, a missionary uh, come back home and say, tell some story about what they, were, what they had to do just to tell people about Jesus? And it's like, wait a minute, maybe I can tell my brother-in-law if they can like, like rip the poison darts out of them and uh, keep going to tell these people who want to, in some cases, kill them. Courage is contagious. That's what Paul says here. Paul says, so I'm, I'm telling the imperial guard round the clock and all these people are coming to visit me. And listen, here's what, I'm, here's what I'm seeing as a result of that. There are other Christians. Some of them might be the, the guards he was handcuffed to. Some of them might be people who were already Christians in Rome before he got there. Probably all of them. Paul says, they, they think, man, if Paul can tell the imperial guard the gospel, people who really could do him physical harm, I can tell the guys at work. I can tell my family. Courage is contagious. Paul's hardship has multiplied the gospel. If nothing else, Paul has become a great talking point. Paul's hardship has made it easy to talk about the gospel. I imagine it in my mind's eye, going like this around Rome. Paul being in prison in Rome was a big deal with this new about this new religion. Can you imagine a Christian in Rome being able to do something like this? Hey, you heard about that Paul guy? Yeah, he's in prison down there on 4th Street in that place. They always have the guards around there. He's in prison for that Christianity thing. You know, I know what Paul believes, that Christianity thing. You want to hear about it? Yeah. Hey. Paul's like, hey, even if I'm just a, a talking point, this has been good for the gospel in Rome. Hardship has always been good for the gospel. If the people who are going through hardship keep the gospel as a priority. The third way, and the last way, that Paul says his little situation has increased and advanced the gospel is maybe a little confusing. There are some Christians who are sort of glad Paul's locked up. They figured out how to profit personally by it. And the Philippians have heard about this. Paul says, don't worry about that. They're increasing the gospel too. Let's read it and then I'll explain it to you a little bit. Paul says, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Oh, time out for a second. Depending upon your translation, there's some textual variance. Some some, Some translators take verse 16 and put it down here and take 17 and put it up there. So don't be thrown as we read this. All the information is there in all of our translations, but there is a variance there. Paul just says, there's kind of two groups of people who have been using my situation to talk about the gospel. One, are, one part of those are doing it out of goodwill. Right? They, they love the Lord. They know I'm placed here for the defense of the gospel. And they're the people I've just talked about. They've been encouraged and emboldened. Paul's courage is contagious 
They're telling more people about Jesus. That's awesome. Then there are these other guys. The former, the ones who preach Christ from envy and rivalry, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. They get something out of this deal. Not sincerely, because they think they can cause trouble for me in my imprisonment. Literally in the Greek, what Paul says right there is they, they try to add pressure to my chains. He doesn't mean they come in and make the cuffs tighter. Just somehow they've figured out Paul's imprisonment is good for them. And so behind the scenes, like they're working to make sure Paul stays in prison. Paul doesn't tell us how this happened. I, I think maybe I know. I'll give you my best idea. But I just want you to know first, the, the reason Paul doesn't explain what's going on is because the Philippians already know. They've asked Paul about this. Up here in verse 15 where Paul says, some of these guys, to be sure, they are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. He's granting that what they've heard is correct. Epaphroditus is the guy who's come from Philippi. And apparently Epaphroditus says, hey Paul, you know we're hearing that there are some guys that are like profiting personally off your imprisonment. What do you think about that? And Paul says, ah, don't worry about that. Here's the way I imagine this going down, and I might be wrong. But there are ways to profit from preaching. I don't know if you've seen what I drive, but I'm just telling you. Uh, there are ways to profit uh, from preaching. And this, this, is, this has been happening for a long, long time. Rome uh, in the first century, for the, by ancient standard, was a massive city. It was incredibly diverse. It was spread out. And Christianity spread through like different people groups, different languages, in different areas of the city. And they're not in churches like this. They're all just these little uh, house churches scattered all over the place. The, the best theory I've read, I didn't make this up, but the best guess I have is that there were guys who figured out they could use the big news of the day draw a big crowd. Maybe they build these things as giant. We're going to get together and pray. Let's get everybody together, you know, for Paul. Maybe they pass the plate, you know, for Paul. Right? Maybe this is a benefit, you know, for Paul. When in reality, they're just trying to consolidate the church. Maybe skim something off the top. Or whatever. That's what I imagine is going on here. But Paul is okay with this. But notice for only one reason. Paul just calls them some. And you have to look up above to find the antecedent for that pronoun. Um, the some is the brethren. Paul says these are Christians. These aren't false teachers who are teaching false things. They aren't having cult meetings. They're Christians preach the real gospel, just their motives are selfish. And Paul says, guys, they're, they're proclaiming Christ. They're having these big meetings, like I've suggested. People are coming to know Jesus because of that. And God will sort out the, the motives of those teachers' hearts. And, and, and God will give discernment to new believers 
Paul doesn't excuse what those guys are doing. Paul doesn't say, like, a local church shouldn't have accountability if someone were, were doing some of these things. Paul's just saying, listen, more people are hearing the real gospel, so I'll rejoice in that. That's what Paul's conclusion is in verse 18, which I think is the conclusion to the whole passage. Paul says this, here's what I ask. What is the result, the ultimate result? Here's the result. In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. I get my joy from Christ being proclaimed. They can't take that from me. I get my joy from more people hearing the gospel. Paul says, that's the result of all of this. It's really easy to get stuck asking different questions. Questions like, why me? Why this? These are real questions. I don't belittle these. I don't blame anyone for asking these. It's just really easy to just be stuck there. Why not Peter and James? Why do those guys get to profit off this and I'm the one that might get my head chopped off? Pretty reasonable question. Paul just refuses to be stuck there. He asks this. What, what is the result? What can be the result? Because here is the truth. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, it can result in God being made much of. It can. Not always. But again, that's, that's why Paul in this passage becomes such a fantastic model of just like Christian maturity and, and Christ-centeredness. Because listen, Paul doesn't prefer being locked up. I don't want you to hear me say, the next time something terrible happens toward you, you better like it. That's not at all what I'm saying. Right? The Bible calls it suffering. It wouldn't be suffering if it wasn't suffering. Right? When this was Paul's first Roman imprisonment. When they when he gets exonerated, you know what he does? He leaves. He doesn't ask if he can stay. He doesn't go knock over a liquor store so he can get rearrested and go back to prison. He's like, man, I'm glad to be out of there. We don't have to enjoy it. We don't have to be happy about it. Paul just has this secret, though. If I focus on whether or not Christ can be magnified in this, there's joy to be mined out of this situation. Because, folks, here's hoping you or I, neither one, end up in prison. I don't want to go to prison. I hope you don't go to prison. That's probably not what's going to happen to you and me. But something's going to happen that we wouldn't prefer. Right? When that hardship hits, what kind of questions will you be ready to ask? 
there will be a season where you will ask the natural questions. I will too. We can set our hearts ahead of time to try to get back to this one. What will be the result of this? Here I am. What will the result be? Can this advance the gospel? Is courage still contagious? The answer to that is a resounding yes, by the way. God is still in the business of shining the brightest when things are darkest. For Paul, it was, I'm in prison, but look what God has done because I kept my joy in the spread of the gospel. If Paul had used his energy to rail against his enemies, the government, all that stuff, he would have become the barrier to the gospel. You know that? You think about this. Paul was in this situation. It had the potential to be good for the gospel. From a human perspective, guess who was going to decide whether or not this was good for the gospel or not? Paul. By his response. Paul could be the conduit turning, the, the, the catalyst that turned this into a massive movement for the gospel. Or just another guy that was locked up for, uh, and he was there for, he was innocent. He committed no crime. He was there for doing what Jesus personally asked him to do. That's all. What will be the result? the question we need to ask. You know how in verse 14, Paul said, basically, man, people have seen my attitude during this crisis and it's lit a fire under them to, to change conversations, to, to spread the gospel, how Paul became just an easy talking point. When Christians keep their joy uh, during hardships, like that's still very, very possible. Let me give you a couple of examples. Even if all our hardship ever does is give someone else something to talk about that can, be, that can advance the gospel, praise God. For example, when I, let's say I, I, I uh, get hit by a bus on the way out of here. We don't even have hard buses, but let's, okay, I, I, I died today, tragically. I, I not only want to give you permission to use my death as an excuse to talk about the gospel with somebody else. I want to encourage you to do so. Man, did you hear about Maxwell? Woo! That was terrible. And he was just alive. He was just up there preaching, right? Next thing you know, bang, he's gone. Just gone. What do you think happens after we die? Can you ask somebody that question? Can you be ready to give them a couple of options? Yes. What if all that comes out of my untimely death is an opportunity for you to use that as a talking point 
to increase the kingdom and the gospel and the joy of Christ. When it's me, please do it. If it's, if it's my diagnosis, God still, God still does these things. How about this one? Man, have you heard, have you heard about the Equality Act? Have you heard about this law where you know, supposedly that what they're going to teach first graders about sexuality that I find so offensive? Have you heard about this? And the person say, yeah, the easy thing to do is launch into your mini AM radio rant, right? To put on the full Rush Limbaugh costume and just dive in there, right? It's what everybody does. How about this? Have you heard about that? Yeah. Like, you know, I really believe we're going to live under a government run by Jesus someday. They'll be like, wow, you are a weirdo. You believe what? Like, yeah, no, seriously. Wouldn't it be great if, like, Jesus, like, ran the show and made all the rules? Wouldn't that be great? You want to know how you can be in that kingdom? We can use hardship to point people toward Christ. Right? We don't have to ask all of the questions the same way the rest of the world does. We just have to choose. We just have to choose whether we're going to use our hard situation, our hard marriage, our hard finances, this difficult job as a way to try and point people to Christ or as a way to just continually point people toward my hardship. How about this one? Hey, I heard you're looking for a house in Imperial. Hard, isn't it? Really hard. I'm really sad you're struggling with that. I know how difficult that can be. You know, a Jewish carpenter is building me a house. No, seriously. A Jewish carpenter is building me a house. His name is Jesus. I know he died 2,000 years ago. But he told his friends, I'm going to build a place for you. Would you like to know how Jesus could be building you a place right You believe that when he went to the cross, he was actually taking your place, suffering the death penalty you believe. Dying for you, because of you, instead of you. If you believe that, he will forgive you of all your sin. He will pick up his heavenly hammer and he will build a place for you. Now, if you start to do this, you share that with some of your close friends. Is that kind of courage contagious? It is. It is. This is why, you know, in our current political climate, as we continue to see the, the moral uh, deterioration of our society, I choose to be more excited about how God is going to use that to build his kingdom, then I choose to be depressed and angry about the moral decline of our society. I refuse to be that guy. Because it does no good. Well, Pastor Matt, I sure don't see him building his kingdom faster than I see the decline of our society. Well, get busy, Christian. 
He will do His part. Will we do ours? Right? We can be more excited about the advance of His kingdom than we can be depressed about the decline of ours. We can. Folks, there's a horse in here somewhere. There is. And it is white. And its rider is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he has been way, he's been through way worse than our current political climate. It doesn't, it doesn't intimidate him a single bit. Will we look for him and point toward him or not? That part is on us. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for um, the example that Paul was that he could keep his joy during a what had to be a frustratingly painful time in his life. God, where people were concerned even about him and he refused to fall into um, that, uh, or at least stay in that sort of um, just depression and pessimism. God, and I know those things are so real and they're so hard and I, I don't mean, Lord, to belittle anyone who's, who's feeling those things. But God, we want to be a people who cares more about the the building of your kingdom and the, and the destruction of ours. So God, when whether it's us going through it right now or we're preparing for that situation we would not pick and we will not enjoy and, and we would rather not face, may we try to see Christ glorified in whatever you allow to touch us. That we might rejoice even during suffering when it hurts, when it's dark, to your glory. We love you. We long for you. We thank you that you hear us. And we pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.